Tonight I'd like to speak about stepping out of self-deception. And uh, I, I remember um, uh, in my practice history uh, being um, extraordinarily enticed by uh, the Buddha's concept of no self, anatta, um, and uh, not having a clue what that meant. And uh, a kind of frustration uh, because um, I don't remember uh, at what time these particular thoughts occurred, but it, it could have been even uh, a year or two or so into the very diligent practice efforts. Uh, and just it just didn't, it didn't have a clue. <laughs> the self, myself was a given now let's move on. And uh, I, I, um, I remember hearing the talks and uh, sort of shaking my head. Um, and then it, it dawned on me uh, very gradually over time. And I'd like to tonight um, honor... Uh, that uh, and to talk a little bit about how we probably know it much more than we think we do. Uh, that we're much deeper into that understanding than we give ourselves credit. And that it is happening over time, uh, despite our perhaps confusion on that point. Uh, because, you know, I often say it happens the moment you sit down for the first time and sincerely uh, see that you have no control whatsoever at being able to direct your mind where you want it to go. So what's doing that? And how come you don't? That question never gets in deep enough. I ask it to the beginning students. I say, well, why can't you do that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> because there it is, right there. There it is. Living proof experiential proof of the fact. Uh, but we keep diligently blaming ourselves, don't we? For, I don't know, I had a lousy sitting and I was, you know, I've been practicing three years and I can't even, and I only on the... On. <laughs> it's just in getting in, you know, that this is not you. It's not, this is not happening. Because you are not in charge here. You are not in charge. So what is this? What is this? Because one uh, spiritual teacher from the Tibetan tradition said it this way. There is no such thing as spiritual advancement. There is only stepping out of self-deception. Stop your struggle to get hold of spiritual states. Just give that up. Other than that, there's no spirituality. Plunk. This practice in all of Buddhism has that at its essence. And I think a story might uh, open us up to that truth. It's actually a story uh, in the Old Testament about King Solomon, who was, a, as I understand, a wise old king. And at one point, a couple of bickering women came to 
him uh, an argument over a child. There was the birth mother and the child's nanny or someone. And each of them were claiming ownership, rightful ownership of the child. And good King Solomon said, okay, I'll settle this. I'm going to cut the child in two and give you both halves of the child. Give each of you a half of the child. At that point, the birth mother said, no, no, she can have it all. At which point, King Solomon gave the birth mother the child. So that's Buddhism. (laughs) Now we'll walk for... (laughs) (laughs) So what is that story? What's... See, the, the, in a moment, the selfish display ended. The self was not, to the woman, to the a mother, the birth mother, uh, the self was uh, no, no longer mattered. What mattered was heart. Hmm? And the purpose, that is the purpose, that is what we're talking about. When Narayan and I speak about the heart and the mind. It's that switch. That radical switch. And in that switch, all, everything occurs. All of non-harm. No longer is non-harm a struggle. No longer are you concerned about having the child. You have it. A complete surrender, a stepping out of self. Separation into wholeness. Or wrong view into wise view. I, I love when the Buddha says, and he would instruct his disciples um, who were ready to teach. He would say, go out for the welfare of the many. Go out for the welfare of all. See, that's it. You know, it's, that's it. That's the heart. That's, that's it. That's what happens when we step out of self-deception. The world opens magnificently. And this is the purpose of meditation. There is no other. From day one, this is the purpose of meditation. So you might say then that meditation is meant to show you that you are not in control and thereby defeat your intentions to be so. And it does. It does a very good job of frustrating us. And some of us just have incredible tenacity and willingness to be frustrated. Hard-headedness is another way of saying it. And just on, on and on. We just, we just haven't tried hard enough. And I just have... You know, I just, oh. Now, it's not that Buddhism doesn't have a component of character development within it. It does. 
it dawned on me one day, uh, insightfully, that the Buddhist teaching, uh, the reason that he spent so much time talking about, you know, be good, don't do this, character development, really, is because he wasn't just interested in that generation he was speaking to. He was interested in that generation developing the qualities of character and heart that allow the future generations that that generation will serve to be safe within that generation's care. And he knew that that was a long-term project. And that if they can hear nothing else, at least they can hear character development. Because it's now 2,500 years later, and who are we in this room but maybe the very people back then that were talked to about character development? And now we draw together again. And in Buddhism, this way of thinking, although there's, it's totally theoretical, I have no idea if it's true at all, it has some sense of inward resonance with me. And character development allows a safety, allows each of us to feel safe in each other's presence because we're not trying to distort or manipulate or harm in any way. And thereby, we instill those qualities that nourish not only our own sense of patience and well-being in the parami, paramis, through the paramis, but also in our interpersonal relationships with others, we also nourish that same, those same characters, that same character. But let us not forget that character is in time. Development is in time. It's long time. And what the Buddhist teaching really points to Is the timeless. You see, the, the moment we step out of the self, which is forever drawing its strength, its purpose is from the past, and its strength is to get over the past into the future. And so its memories are being lived. And the present is just a kind of a, an impoverished time until I can get over this problem that I have lived with my whole life and then in the future I will be. Hmm? And as we begin to risk, take the risks of mindfulness, which I... So appreciated that talk. To take those risks. We see that what is actually here is without description. It is without time. And it can be anything. It is formless. And it's only my thought about me in my memory and recognition 
an image of me in which I embody the sense of purpose and time at all. Because without that, what's left? We've already seen it. It all floats free. And there we stand. Where the past is dead. Dies. It's like firing caps. Blanks. And the sense of me maintains itself through its own description. It gets caught in an abstract bubble, its own concept, and then just tries to work out its salvation of being an abstract concept with more abstracts, with more concepts. It says, how can I get over this problem of me? I have to figure out how to get over this problem of me. How do I get over the problem of me? (laughs) (laughs) And everything is seen through that conditioning and filter of me. Because it's all, all of the past is, the story is so complete and fulfilling. And it's convincing, it's so convincing. It's so convincingly full. How do I get over that? And then we see the problem because we keep hurting. And we just, how do I get over it? How? How? How can I? How? Please tell me how. Give me a concept, a map, something, some conceptual way to get around myself. It's very interesting to me that story of King Solomon occurred when the lady, both women, were confronted with death. Sometimes the worst that life can offer us is the thing in which brings our heart out. And I've had many examples of that when I was by the bedside of people who were dying. People who have had no contact or interest in meditation were vertical. For they had no future and nothing to pass their image out. Nothing to pass their image through and hand it off to. What do you do when that happens? What about if we didn't have a future? And that sense, that storyline, that sense of me creates the veil of ideas where the world arises through ideas. The Buddha said the world arises from this fathom-long body. 
And you, we can see that. That from the veil of concepts, everything is colored conceptually. We know everything. And everything, because inside we are so separate and isolated, everything that we see externally is equally so. The world is split apart infinitely in its 10,000 displays and appearances. And because we are, in essence, a conceptual story, the only way we can keep ourselves going is to continue the story. If we're ever quiet, we start dissolving like the wicked witch of the north. And so, mind you, we keep it going. It's like ticker tape. And the thoughts, when we're trying to be quiet... We have no access to quiet or really, better said, no willingness to be quiet. Rather, we just think. And that keeps us very well formed. Or we fight with our thinking. That's a good one. Which means we create more noise with our thoughts. Because anything to create noise, even if it's with our thinking, reasserts our position in things. Our argument. Our argument. We depend upon our argument with life. Because to stay separate, which is an artificial division, requires argument. It requires differentiation. I'm different than you. I'm better than you. Worse than you. Same as you. Prettier than you, better than you, better meditator, better spiritual. Some differentiation. It requires argument. And then, I know myself. Because I've been sitting a lot longer than you, so you come to me for interviews. (laughs) And so, to differentiate, the differentiation, no matter how refined it is, a spiritual differentiation... He's got so much calm. He's got a lot of wisdom. It's really just more noise on the scene. More inward speak. More argument, really. We're not... We're so interested in ending our argument. We're not so interested. We refine our argument, but ending our argument. This kid's going to be cut in two. Now, what are you going to do? Argument's over. You have her. You see what it takes? The knife has to be right up against our... And we want to try to let the self figure out our spiritual problem and our spiritual fix. And so we use whatever means available the self can use to do just that. And usually it's some form of more subtle argument. Waiting is an argument. 
anything, you, you, you'll get to know the self very well because it's always speaking in time. Its language is in time. It's so hard not to learn. It's so hard. The practice is really so simply stated. Don't resist. Stop resisting. Stop the argument, in other words. Just cease the argument. Well, how do I do that? That's an argument. Well, I need more time. I don't have enough samadhi to end the argument. So how do we end the argument? I will give talk tonight about three ways to cease the argument. And... And so do I, I'm going to tell you a story um, about uh, a spiritual encounter I had with Nisargadatta Maharaj, who was, uh, who, um, was spoken about last night in Ryan's talk. It was 1980. I was a monk and very proud of being so. And I walked into his small gathering about half the size of this room with about twice as many people. So you can see how we were sitting and he said, uh, I'd like you to sit right there. And that, that fit my, my pride, so I plopped down. And then he, for the next uh, several days, uh, looked and acted very interesting uh, about my story, what I've been doing, how I've been among, what practice I've been doing and all of this. And I just uh, was telling him everything he needed to know. Because uh, if he would to get, get it straight, he would probably do what I was doing. This is my thought. Finally, uh, one day I came in and plopped down in my usual position. He says, what are you doing sitting there? I said, uh, somewhat surprised. I said, well, I always sit here. He says, uh, I want you to go back in the back of the room. He says, you've been giving me days of garbage. And he says, I don't want you... Uh, to say another word unless you can say something wise because I haven't heard a word from you that's been wise. So then I went back to the back of the room (laughs) and then I kept trying to say something wise. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally he said to me, you know, instead of doing um, all that work, because in that day of an age, I was uh, struggling and strenuously applying every. It was a, it was a misdire- I was misdirected, but very stubbornly misdirected, which has been a downfall of mine since day one. <laughs> it takes a lot to um, chisel away at my stubbornness. I hold on to what I'm doing and fight it bitterly. And uh, so 
And he said, uh, if you'd like to uh, join uh, me in freedom, he says, uh, drop all that. Just let it go. He was saying, you know, you want the baby divided or do you want it whole? And he says, you can do that and you can join me immediately. Or you can work uh, for years to come and do it the slow way. And I said, well, thank you very much. I'll take the slow way. <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. I said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But I knew he did. I knew he did. And uh, at one point, he, um, he knew he had hit me so hard to break my stubbornness that in a verbal exchange, uh, he stung me and set me reeling. And it shifted my consciousness completely. Uh, and I think it was, I needed uh, almost a death slap. Which he did. He, he did. And uh, it was the beginning of understanding what he had said. For he was suggesting that uh, one of the quickest way, as he put it, was to simply release the resistance, the argument. Uh, to come back to what uh, is inherently here and to quit arguing against being what is inherently here as well. Stop arguing was his message. And all the words that we use in meditation are words like non-resisting and saying yes to our experience and allowance and all the other things that we're saying are really words of non-resistance. But many of us don't like the idea of letting go, so we let go in a piecemeal fashion. We let go of what we don't like or what seems to hurt. But we can't, you can't let, the self can't let go of itself. The self is not in control of its letting go. For the self to be in control of its letting go may create a small opening in the view, but it will close right back down around it because the self is doing it through its own mechanism. Letting go is something total and complete. It's what the woman did in the King Solomon story. And the shift is that fast. It's not mauled over, debated, argued, thought about, and then released. True surrender, true surrender is the activity of releasing our separation. It's an all or nothing. And so the Buddha in his um, understanding 
uh, he had many people who let go immediately. He would just give a sermon according to the text and many people would let go. Probably from the power of his presence and from the clarity of his speech. But most people are not that, uh, don't have the whatever it is to do it that way. So there are other methods or other ways that this practice allows that to occur, allows us to step out of self-deception through a slower-paced method. The second way, then, if we have uh, bypassed uh, the first, is a, a method of inquiry in asking ourselves, who am I? When we ask ourselves, who am I? We undermine the questioner. If we ask a question from the questioner, if the questioner asks the question, if the sense of me asks the question, the question really strengthens the sense of me. How do I get over this pain? Is a question that really strengthens the sense of me. But to ask, who am I? That question undermines the questioner. And so many traditions, including Nisargadatta himself, he used to say, go to the I am and refuse anything that is not of the I am. And Ramana Maharshi would say, just continue to inquire over and over again, who is asking this question? Who is behind this emotion? What is on and on? And it's a very, very important component to get underneath the root system of the sense of me. It's a radical, it's the most radical question you can ask. A confrontive question. A question that takes your breath away, literally. And puts you suspended animation into the wonder rather than into assurance. Into stillness rather than into the noise. To question the questioner. Now, my hope is that when our practice becomes too struggling, too forceful, uh, too um, conflictual, too argumentative, that we pause and ask, who is it that's arguing? And you'll find when you pose that question with sincerity and look to discover directly the answer of that question, not to postulate it as an idea, but to look directly behind the struggle to see what it is or who it is that is struggling 
there is a suspended, a suspension of the struggle itself and a vast quiet that surfaces, a, a vast nothingness that surfaces. And we become very alive in that nothingness. It's not the small e emptiness as was spoken about today, but the capital E. But most of us may, many of us may not have the character uh, for uh, that kind of self-examination because it requires a kind of willingness um, uh, uh, to be uprooted. And many of us have been scarred in our lives and have a limited sense or ability to trust. And we feel more timid than that. We want to go even slower. We want, we want to take our time with this thing. Fair enough. There really isn't any pressure for us to speed up so the meditation also has an avenue for people who are kind of moving along at a pace that's individually determined by them and is equally as effective. And may I say that as I approach this third way to step out of self-deception, you'll find that it different points in your practice that each of these ways come forward and that most of us practice all three at different times. And most of us probably practice this last way um, uh, most uh, for, for the longest duration and most readily. Now, what is this last way? It's the ability just to look at yourself. The willingness just to observe the mind and the shape that it's taking. Because what begins to dawn from continual observation in which you may think nothing is happening at all, and I've seen this all a thousand times, something is occurring. There is a slow and sometimes sudden insight that is taking place that, my God, I can't be both the subjective and the objective at the same time. This sense of observation and what I'm looking at cannot be one and the same thing. Therefore, what I am looking at, the emotions, the thoughts, the physical sensations, cannot be me. Because I wouldn't be able to see them if they were me. And I'm having the objective experience of being able to see them. And pretty soon, not pretty soon, but over a long period, for many people, over a long period of continual, sincere practice, there comes the, a deepening understanding that no matter what the mind is displaying, that simply isn't me.
the who I am is not contained anywhere I look. And the mind can quiet sufficiently to even look at the looker, to even watch the watcher, turns back on itself and sees that that which holds the looking and comments upon the looking and continually uh, has a kind of, you know, dialogue going with the looking, really monologue, is just more of the same objectivity. Well, so where is the sense of I? Where is me? Because I feel like I'm still here. The sense of me feels very continuous. I feel like I was born. I feel like I went through first grade, high school, and here I am. And it has been kind of continuous. So don't tell me there's no me. We argue with ourselves. And yet, we also see ourselves changing over time. So we're not impervious to life. Change is getting in there. So whatever this continuous sense of me is, it must be affected by things. It must be molded and changed by circumstances and able to grow. And when I look for that sense of me, it's not clear where it's located. Except that we begin to sense that it may be in memory. Because what doesn't change is our memory. And what seems to be continuous is just that our recognition in our memory. Therefore, maybe, the sense of me is derived from that sense of memory and recognition. Which is subtle thought. And that's why when I look out, it seems so clear that I'm in here. Because I'm looking at it longitudinally from where I've come. And I can tell you where I've come. Hmm. Now, we begin to become very quiet with things. Because we see, the more quiet we become, the less we instill the memory component into things. And we can actually become aware of that component of mind. And the identity begins to seep out of the forms that we have been seeing because the forms that we have been seeing are obviously not ours because we can see them. They're obviously not I, me, or mine because they are objectively seen. And what happens then is that our identity begins to slip out of that. Where does it go? It doesn't form itself again into a person, but it comes out of the forms that we have instilled into the seeing itself, into the looking itself. 
in the Upanishads, the Hindu scriptures, it says, not that which the eye sees, but that whereby the eye can see. Know that to be Brahman, the eternal, and not that which people here adore. Not that which the ear hears, but that whereby the ear can hear. And it's all happening within awareness. And awareness has no placeholder. It has no fixed location to claim a relationship to I, me, or mine. Just as an example to that, if I could for just a moment, have you do this. Each of you, as you just sit here, bring forth the experience of awareness. So have your sense of self having the experience of being aware. Yourself being aware. Just, okay, you can be aware of whatever you want. Sights, sounds, smells, sensations. But just have the sense of self being aware. Now I want to switch the figure ground. For a moment, see awareness as having the experience of self rather than self having the experience of awareness. Awareness having the experience of self. Can you get a feel for that? So who's your mother? (laughs) You see the experience of me. Is all we are. And the proper orientation itself, the proper orientation is not to embed our identity in that experience, but rather to free it in the looking, the seeing itself. And as we begin to get a deeper and deeper sense of that, and a deeper and deeper certainty in that. We no longer are confined and trapped within our thinking about the world from a two-dimensional, objective, subjective view. Because the seeing is not contained within the words. The seeing holds the words. Who would I be if I did not have this thought, this drama, this story? Who would I be if I released myself from this story? You see that there's nothing behind the story which can coalesce around your being again. There's just the story. Who am I if I release myself from the story? In the silence of that question, 
there's no formative answer that comes forward. And it is in that deep abiding stillness that is answerless that is where the answer lies. The self comes forward when there's functional things to do because that's the mechanism by which functionality occurs and can be navigated. But let us not be fooled. It is a functional display, a form of navigation through the world. It is not a description of the world itself, nor of I in the world. And we begin to release ourselves from uh, release ourselves from self-centered thinking, no longer embedded in the terminology of differentiation, no longer seeing ourselves as separate or distant from. Not that which the eye sees but that whereby the eye can see. And then you know what the woman was facing as the sword began to fall on her child. And how quickly this whole problem can be resolved because it's only a trick of the mind. And how full the heart can be in its capacity to give away even its child in love. And then you know why that story defines Buddhism from beginning to end. May all beings know their self-deception. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.